Galatians chapter 2. So good to be with you tonight, and we appreciate all of you being out with us. We're grateful for those who are visiting with us today, and those who have traveled some distance, and it is our prayer that they will have a safe trip back home as well. When you're studying the New Testament, and particularly as you get into the book of Acts and some of the epistles, you know, very quickly we, we learn that in the churches of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, in the first century, in those early, year, those early years, had to work through some problems. And one of the big issues that was discussed and sometimes divided churches was the topic of circumcision. And so it was, it was something that was an intense discussion. And yet, uh, in spite of the fact that it created some very disquieting you know, situations for the churches in those days. But eventually, truth was made clear. It became very evident. And the brethren did become one-minded on that particular subject concerning the Lord's teaching. And Galatians chapter 2 addresses a little bit of that. It's kind of set on the backdrop of this problem of circumcision and brethren stirring up trouble about that. And you have Paul writing about meeting with some brethren in Jerusalem. I want to take the time to read these first 10 verses of Galatians chapter 2. So please open up your Bible. If you don't have one in ha at hand, uh, there's one provided in the pew. And please you know, turn to the New Testament book of Galatians. And let us begin reading at verse 1 of the second chapter. Then after my... But then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, because I did so in private to those who were of reputation, for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in, who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised, effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to them circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. So here you have a situation where Paul meets with these brethren, and it's, it is over uh, the matter of circumcision and the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And on this particular occasion, it appears to be that the issue was resolved, and you have these three leading brothers who give Paul and Barnabas their right hands of fellowship. And the focus of, of everyone's work was to be that of preaching the gospel to everybody. Whether you're circumcised or whether you're uncircumcised, it really didn't matter. The important thing was everybody was preaching the gospel to everybody. But then this particular paragraph ends with a very interesting request. And that's what I want us to talk about tonight. Verse 10, where it says, They only asked us to remember the poor. The very thing I also was eager to do. Isn't that interesting? The emphasis of this, this uh, uh, paragraph is all about Paul and Peter and everyone else preaching the gospel to everybody. But as they come to this agreement and this understanding and this acknowledgement of each other, you have Peter and James and John making a point to, say, to tell Paul and Barnabas that as they go about doing the work of the Lord, that they remember the poor. You know, these men, these brothers in Christ, these servants and ministers and apostles of Jesus, we, what we find is that you know, there's a balance of the need to be true to the truth, while at the same time making some very practical applications of carrying out that truth. And so they say, Remember the poor. The gospel of Jesus Christ meets the needs of everybody. It meets, it meets the needs of all men. And it even meets the needs of those who would be classified as the poor. And clearly when you begin to think about this subject of remembering the poor, the first group of poor people that you're going to think about are those who are economically poor. And rightfully so, those who are poor because of their financial or material situation need to be remembered, do they not? We need to remember the poor. There will always be poor people in the world. Always. Jesus said that himself. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 11, is where he says, For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. The context there is the occasion when the woman comes and, and anoints Jesus with a very expensive perfume and ointment. And the disciples comment about, you know, in their judgment, a waste of this precious Product that could have been sold and then distributed to the poor. And Jesus says in response to this, she's done this in preparation for my burial. And he says, you'll always have poor people. Always, Jesus says. So there will always be poor people in the world. And we need to remember the poor. Those who are economically challenged. But how did Jesus remember the poor? What's the emphasis of remembering the poor when it came to the work and the mission of Jesus Christ? Well, turn to Luke chapter 4, if you will. In Luke chapter 4, 
early on in the ministry of our Lord and Savior, listen to what the Holy Spirit through Luke tells us. And so Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 16, it says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He had Peter and James and John telling Barnabas and, and, and Paul says, okay, your job you know, primarily is to preach the gospel to the Gentile people, the uncircumcised individuals. And he says, as you do that, remember the poor. Jesus remembered the poor, and how did he remember them? He preached the gospel to them. That's what he did. He preached them to them the good news. If you recall on a later occasion, remember John is in prison. John the Baptist is imprisoned because of what he's teaching. And things that the rulers, Herod, did not like to hear. And John is hearing about the ministry of Jesus while he's in prison, and he sends messengers. This is recorded, for example, in Matthew 11. Matthew 11, verse 5 particularly, where John sends a message to Jesus and asks him about who he is and what he's doing. And if you recall, part of the response, part of the answer that Jesus sends back to John is this. The poor have the gospel preached to them. Jesus remembered the poor. Often in a world that is run by the carnal, worldly-minded, the poor sometimes are forgotten. But Jesus did not forget the poor, even those who were economically poor. Jesus did not forget them. And what he did, he preached to them the gospel. He preached to them the good news of hope. You know, Jesus did not feed and clothe all the poor in his day. He didn't. But he preached to them. He preached to them something that was much more substantial. In our study of the, uh, the harmony of the Gospels, even today, we, we talked about this idea of Jesus being the living bread. He is the one who's come down from heaven above. He is our manna that gives eternal life. He doesn't just fill your stomach. And so Jesus came preaching the gospel to the poor. He remembered them. And so Barnabas and Paul are being told, don't forget to, to remember the poor in your great work of proclaiming the good news of Jesus to the world. Because the poor, like everybody else, needs the bread of life. They need that which, that which is going to endure to eternal life. They need that which is going to abide with them forever. Is that perhaps you know, that deep concept of understanding the, the spiritual versus the carnal being brought out in Matthew 6? When we're basically told in the Sermon on the Mount, Stop worrying. 
Stop worrying. Stop worrying. Easier said than done, is it not? But we all tend to worry about different things at different times. And yet the Lord says, don't do it. But rather, you need to start seeking God. You need to put Him first in your life. You need to put His interest, His kingdom first in your life. And, he says, and God will take care of you. The Sermon on the Mount, as recorded in Matthew 5-7, through is good news. It is the gospel of peace. And it is a message that needed to be preached to the poor and also the rich. Need to be preached to everybody, but not just to a select few, but for all. Don't forget to remember the poor. Remembering the poor is not just a thought. It is taking action to meet their need. Now, the New Testament church, as we read here in, in the New Testament, the New Testament church did see the physical needs of the poor and needy saints. They did take care of one another. And you see that very clearly in the pattern of the New Testament. For example, very quickly in Acts chapter 2. You're familiar with that. You know, Acts 2 is the proclamation of Christ on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. 3,000 souls uh, were baptized into Christ that day. And the number began to, to grow from that day onward. And we're told as these people's allegiance has changed, their life is changing. And what, what, what was one of the things they're doing? Well, they're take, looking, af, looking out after each other. They're taking care of one another. And so in verse 44, he says, All those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Here's the New Testament church, the first church in Jerusalem, the gospel was preached to them, and yes, and the church is looking out after one another. And so it's not that, you know, you know the physical needs of, uh, of, of saints is neglected or forgotten. You know, loving benevolence is part of the gospel. And churches of Christ throughout the New Testament saw to that. They did their best to... Meet those needs as they arose. But we need to remember the poor today. And we need to remember the poor today, particularly by preaching the same message that Jesus did. Take the gospel to the poor. And that may put you in a situation where you may be somewhat uncomfortable because they're not of the same class as your class economically. But remember them. Remember the poor as Jesus did. Honest hearts who have very little in this world are often, are often far more receptive to the Lord's message of grace and hope than those who are rich. Who in their mind, they think they have all that they need, but they don't. They lack the greatest thing, and that's God. They lack Christ. And so, so the apostles are told, remember the poor as you do the work of preaching the gospel. Because it is the poor who are described in James chapter 2, if you recall. In James chapter 2, 
They describe to those who are rich in faith. Verse 5 of the second chapter. He says, listen, my beloved brethren, do not, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? It's in the context of the problem of showing partiality, and particularly in the context here, it is a partiality being shown because of your status in life. And it's condemned. You have two people described. You got a rich guy and you got a poor guy. And the poor guy is being mistreated and not honored as he ought to have been. And the Spirit reminds us that we should not make such distinctions. And when we do, we are judging with evil motives. And so when he, he says, it is the poor often who are the richest in faith. Remember the poor. But the economically poor are not the only poor folks in this world. There's also those who are poor in health. In this life, sadly, there are many who suffer with bad health. And if we live long enough in this world, we will have bad health. And we will have a health that we wish we did not have. It is just part of this world, part of this journey, part of, of this life that this body will not last. It will deteriorate. You know, and as the years increase, the realization of that becomes far more apparent to us than when we are younger. And so in, in, in those times of being poor in health, it's difficult. It's hard. Because so often, you know, as our health is deteriorating, it can become very disappointing on the one hand, but more than that, it can be discouraging. Even discouraging us spiritually as the pain or the hardship simply begin to chip us away and wear us out and wear us down. And we don't have the energy and enthusiasm that we used to have as Christians, not just as men and women, but even as men and women of faith, that we can't do what we used to could do. Remember, not only those who are economically poor, that they deserve to, to hear the gospel as much as anybody else, and they may be just more receptive than your first pick. But also remember those who are poor in health. In 2 Corinthians, you're familiar with that passage of Paul's health problems, described as a thorn in the flesh. And what Paul Learns is he learned that God's grace has the power to sustain him even when his health will not improve. When God says, my grace is sufficient, I'm not taking that thorn away. In other words, he says, Paul, I'm not going to make you better. I'm not going to make you better. You're going to have to live with whatever this is. You're not going to get better from this thorn. And he, 
died with that thorn, whatever it was. You think about it. The Lord was fully aware of all of Paul's needs, his spiritual needs, his emotional needs, his mental needs, and his, you know, God knew, Jesus knew all what Paul dealt with. He knew what Paul endured and what he suffered as a Christian, as an apostle, all the persecution, opposition. He knew everything about Paul. God was fully aware of his needs, and he did answer Paul. He didn't answer in the way that Paul first wanted, but he did answer Paul. Paul, I mean, God answered his son, Paul. What's unique in this passage, though, is that Paul found something. And he found something that he would not have found without his infirmities. He wouldn't have found what he found in the infirmity. And so as you think about this, you know, beginning there in verse 8, he says, Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me, whatever this thorn was. Three times he implored the Lord that he would take it away. In verse 9, the Lord answered, and he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And so now Paul accepts the lesson. He accepts the Lord's answer. And he's going to adjust to it now. And he says, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, including the thorn, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul would not have found the great lesson that God gave him without that infirmity. And he was grateful for it. But remember the poor in health. Remember them. It's hard. It's difficult. It's discouraging. It's disappointing. It's exhausting. It's wearying. Remember those who are poor in health. Now, the gospel of Christ does give us power, and he gives us power through prayer. And it's through the power of prayer that we find comfort, that we find endurance and strength, and we find healing from time to time. And so we're instructed in James 5, James 5, 13 through 15, where it says, Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. That's what Paul did. Paul was suffering with that thorn, and he prayed. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. There's power in prayer. Remember the poor in health in your prayers. But that's not the only way we need to remember the poor in health, is it? That's just one way. Remember the poor in health with the promise that there is a better place. There is a place, as we're told in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. There is a place where there is no more pain. And there is a place where there is no more sorrow. And there is a place where there is no more dying, no more death. 
implying there is no more illness, there's no more sickness, there's no more disease. Remember the poor in health with the promise that God has given us all. A promise that can anchor us and sustain us with a steadfast, unshakable hope because God is faithful and He will not forsake His children. But the poor economically and the poor in health are not the only ones who are poor. You also have those, the Bible talks about, as the poor in spirit. In the Beatitudes of Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, you know that Beatitude where it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Remember the poor. Remember the poor in spirit. Jesus came preaching the gospel. And it was a gospel of heaven of the kingdom, of an eternal kingdom. And that gospel is to all men, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile. But it is the poor in spirit who will find entrance into that glorious kingdom of light and kingdom of heaven. So Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom belongs to those who are poor in spirit. It does not belong to the proud and haughty. It does not belong to the wealthy and powerful. It belongs to the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Remember those who have a true estimation of their own spiritual worth. Remember those people. Those who truly understand their worth and their place and their condition before their creator. They understand their spiritual destitution in the presence of God Almighty. They understand who they are and what they are when they're in the presence of a God who is holy and glorious and righteous and loving. All of us are spiritually bankrupt and spiritually powerless to save ourselves. None of us can save ourselves without Jesus Christ. Remember the poor. Remember the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's not for the proud and the haughty. It's for those who see themselves for what they are and see their need for Jesus Christ. Remember the spiritual beggars because they are the ones who will not argue with God's conditions of mercy. When we see our true worth and we see our place and we see what we are without God and without Christ and recognize that we are bankrupt, we are destitute, we are in extreme poverty of the soul and spirit. We don't argue with God when we see that in ourselves. Because they have emptied themselves already out of all pride and all selfishness and self-achievement. And they come to understand that they need a redeemer and they need to be redeemed. And so they are the people who will ask and say, 
What must I do? That simple. Remember the poor in spirit. They may not look or dress or talk or think like you. But remember the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But finally, also, let us remember those who are poor in faith. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ did not abandon those who are weak in their faith. But rather, you see throughout His ministry, you see Jesus gently rebuking and continuing trying to instill in their hearts a greater faith than what they had at the time. And you see that particularly as he worked with and tried to train his own apostles. You know, the chosen 12. You know, they, they, they were far from what the men that they would become one day. These pillars of faith, these heroes of faith, they weren't there yet when they were under the tutelage of Christ. And Jesus remembered their poorness of faith. For example, in, in Matthew chapter 8, Matthew chapter 8, it's kind of glancing there just at a few verses, in verse 23 through 27. It's one of the occasions they, they, get, they get in a boat and the storm comes up and, and Jesus is tired. He's exhausted from all the work he's doing and he actually falls asleep in this boat. He's sound asleep while you've got this storm raging against them and the apostles are scared to death. And they wake him up and say, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And Jesus says, why are you afraid? You men of little faith. And then he got up, he rebuked the winds and the sea, and he became perfectly calm. Remember those who are poor in faith like Jesus does. He didn't abandon them. Oh, yes, he, he recognized, acknowledged they weren't where they needed to be yet. But he dealt with them as children. If you turn to just a few pages, staying in Matthew chapter 14, you, you look over you know, when you, at the occasion of Peter. You know, again, they're back in the boat. They're in the boat a lot, going back and forth across the Sea of Galilee. So no wonder we've got a, a number uh, of accounts that involve water and boats. And so they're back, you know, they're back in the boat again, and Jesus has come walking on the water. And you know the story. Peter you know, uh, you know, says, if that's you, Lord, you know, just command me to come. And Jesus does. And as Brian pointed out so well this morning, you know, the magnitude of faith it took to step out of the boat. That's huge. But as we as pointed out in the text, he took his eyes off Jesus. He saw the storm again. For a moment, he didn't see the storm. The storm wasn't gone yet. The waves were still just you know beating you know, beating around him. You know you know when he you know, it, that was still happening. But when his eyes on Jesus, he didn't see it. It's when he took his eyes off Jesus, he saw again. He started worrying. Then he started sinking. And what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do? He stretches out his hand and takes hold of him, 
pulls him back up out of the water. He says, you have a little faith. Why did you doubt? I can't help when I, in, in, when I read some of these accounts when Jesus challenges them uh, of the little faith that they're displaying at the moment that, that there, is, there is tenderness in the way Jesus says it. That there's no question that this is the master teacher who loves his students dearly and is doing his best to train them and equip them for what is to come. And so, yes, he gently rebukes them and he continues to try to remind them and teach them day after day after day. One more example in Matthew 16. Matthew 16, turn over there if you will. On another occasion, Matthew 16, you look there, for example, in verses 7 through 11, you know, it's, it's the occasion where you got the Pharisees and Jesus you know, t- warns them about, you know, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You know, that, that's, Jesus has given that ad- admonishment. And they start talking about that. And, and, and they said, they thought you know, he was talking about bread, you know, because they didn't bring any bread with them as they're traveling along the way, verse 7. But Jesus then responds and says, Oh, you men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not understand? Do you remember the five loaves and the 5,000? Do you remember the, the seven loaves and the 4,000? How is it that you don't understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but beware of the leaven of the fairies and the Sadducees? You know, in spite of the fact, you know, Jesus, y'all, y'all don't get it. In spite of all of that, Jesus just keeps on teaching with all long suffering and patience. He keeps teaching them. Why is that? Because they were poor in faith, that's why. And he's growing their faith. He's helping their faith to grow. Paul talks about his work, how he became all things to all people, so that, that, that he may benefit them the most. So yes, we need to remember the economically poor and preach them the gospel and take care of our needy brethren. And we need to remember the poor in health and how hard it is and lift them up in our prayers, but in other ways as well. But also we need to remember the poor in spirit, for they are receptive to the gospel, but also remember the poor in faith. I want to end with a couple of verses in Romans 14, and the lesson will be yours then. Romans 14. In verse 1 it says, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. And we're not talking about someone here who is in error, who is walking in sin. But he's described as, as he, this one is, is described as one who is weak. He's weak in faith. And he says, accept that one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose to, to be judging them, you know, to, you know, to argue over things, but rather you see down in verse 19, in the context of Romans 14, he says, So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. See, that's the ultimate goal of Romans 14, is, is for us to not get lost in our judgment of one another 
And, and perhaps that judgment can even be somewhat unrighteous. And we're not we're to, to be cautious that we don't judge unrighteously, but we're to receive one another, even receive those who may be weak in faith. For what reason? So that we may pursue the things that will build them up. That's why. So that we can be like the Lord. Yes, that may, they may need some rebuking, they may, they may need some reproving and correcting, but we do so with a heart of gentleness and understanding to help them grow a greater faith, a deeper faith, a stronger faith. So as we go about doing the work of our Lord this week, remember the words of Peter, James, and John. When they told Paul and Barnabas, remember the poor. Remember the poor. Because there are needs that need to be met. And God gives us the opportunities and the resources to meet those needs. The greatest poverty that we can ever experience is that of being outside of Jesus Christ, lost in our sin, damned to an eternity in hell. There is no greater poverty. And the gospel is to be preached to the poor, those who are lost, lost in sin. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, you've not confessed your faith that Jesus is the Son of God, with your mouth before others and repented of your sins and been baptized, we want to encourage you to do that. Encourage you to make that decision, make that allegiance to God and to Jesus tonight so that you can be saved. So you can no longer be lost and condemned because of your sin, but cleansed and redeemed and rich in God. If you are a child of God, and there is sin in your life that you've not repented of. If we can assist you in making your life right, we encourage you to come forward, make your wishes known as we stand and sing the song that has been selected.